Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hey, I want to talk about the moment we were just in and worship there. Man, the, the powerful truth that God is good. For us to not just know that, but for us to state that together. And before that, no matter what situa- situation we're in, to be able to raise our alleluia and the, the fact that we can give it to God and that our weapon is our melody of praise. And so I just want to encourage us as we worship, and the Bible says, teach one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. There's something that happens when we come together and we sing the praises to God with one another. Maybe somebody's struggling in their faith and the voices of the people next to them are lifting them up. So as we worship, know that, that there's encouragement happening. And uh, I love the songs this morning. And then as I was preparing for this morning, I'll be honest, this was kind of a tough sermon to put together. It, it really was. And uh, what was interesting was I, I, I had a passage that I, I wanted to preach this morning. And as I kept returning to it, it didn't feel right. And so what I did was I copy and pasted that entire chapter over into a document. And I noticed the portion right above the passage that I was going to preach on. And so I kept returning to it and kept returning to it. And I'll let you know, there's some strange stuff in it. And, but I feel like this is where God wants us to sit today. I feel like God wants to teach us something through this today. So I'm surrendering to him and what he has this morning. And this is going to be one of those few sermons where I'm going to dive deep. For us to understand things, I'm going to dive deep and I'm going to dive quickly. But I think that as we unpack it, we'll find some truth that we could sit on and some truth in understanding what gives us life. And so let let me start with a few questions. The first question, especially for those of us who are married, have you ever had a conversation where you thought you made yourself clear, but come to find out you were misunderstood? (laughs) Or here's another, a similar question. Have you ever been talking with somebody and you realize that as you're talking with them, you're talking about two different things? It's like you're having two conversations, different conversations at the same time, and maybe you're talking past each other. Uh, As I was thinking about these questions, I was reminded of a family reunion that I went to growing up. And my family were uh, Spanish uh, background with some Native American cross from northern New Mexico, southern Colorado. And when the conquistadors came over, there was a blend of cultures there. And so a lot of my family speaks fluent Spanish. And some of my family, it's their main language. For me, I wasn't raised that way. And so I'm at a family reunion, and we have a PA system there at our family reunion, and somebody left their lights on in the parking area. So one of my relatives came up to me, and she told me, hey, can you announce that there is a car with the lights on? And she begins to tell me what the license plate is. So I lean over, and she says, 32. So I lean into the microphone. I say, 32. I lean over. I say, is that right? She says, C. I lean over to the microphone. I say, C. (laughs) thinking that it's a letter, and it wasn't. It was one of those times I misunderstood the conversation. And this morning, I'm going to bring us into a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples that is similar. 
And so if you have your Bibles or you have your phones and an app on your phone, we're going to be in Matthew 16 for most of this morning. In Matthew 16, we're going to start in verse 5. So Matthew 16, verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered. So you could see in Mark 6 that that Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and there's leftovers. Then he says, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls were... uh, Basketfuls you gathered. It's a very similar one. You could read that in Mark 8. He says, how is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread. But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. God, we pray for this morning. And Lord, I I, I pray God, that as we unwrap this passage, Lord, I pray that the truth of what brings us true life is spoken. So God, I pray that you do the work this morning. God, we submit to you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So before I dig in super deep and sit on just the main point that Jesus is making, there's a few observations from this passage that I want to point us to. The first is that Jesus uses their current circumstances to teach them something. He's a brilliant teacher. And so because they forgot bread, that's their circumstances, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to talk to them and now teach them about the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we see that in verse 5, right? When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. So that's their circumstances, and Jesus uses it. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We also see that they miss what he was saying to them. They imposed what they thought he was saying onto the conversation. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about sometimes how we approach even Scripture. I don't know about you, but I I tend to oftentimes oppose what I want on the text. I don't let it speak for itself. I think it's important when we open Scripture to let God do his work that we ask the tough questions. What is it saying? We ask the questions, who wrote it? Who'd they write it to? Why was it written? When was it written? What would they have understood when they read it? See, by doing that, then we can draw out truth. Then that becomes applicable for us today. But I don't know about you, but we tend to just simply impose what we want sometimes on the text. 
And then I think about that, imposing sometimes what I want on a passage. Sometimes what happens is we cut God out of the conversation. And the thing is, is God holds authority over all things, including Scripture. So I want to say, let him in the process. See this in verse 7. They discuss this among themselves. So they're over here, right? Jesus is over here. And they say, it is because we didn't bring any bread. So Jesus over here, he's aware of their discussion. And Jesus asks, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? So those are some observations in the text. But where I want us to land is in the main point that Jesus is making. And the main point that we will sit on today. And I believe there's truths for us to draw out today and be challenged. And maybe shape new beliefs in us. And it's this idea of being aware of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in verse 12, right? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread. But against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In order for us to understand this statement, I believe we have to understand who the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, and then we need to understand the significance of yeast to the Jewish people. So I'm going to take you on to a history lesson so we understand where the Pharisees and Sadducees came from. If you go back to the middle of the Old Testament, Israel was a great nation. But at a certain point, they split. So you have Israel in the north, and you have the kingdom of Judah in the south. And in the 700s BC, so before Christ, the Assyrians came in, and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in the 500s BC, you have Babylon came into Judah, and they, they conquered Jerusalem, destroyed it, and they took God's people off into captivity into Babylon. And so God's people were in captivity in Babylon, and while they were there, Babylon gets taken over by the Persians. And after a while, the Persians were nice enough to let them go back to their homeland, and they rebuilt Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple. This is what we call the Second Temple Period. And what happened was the Persians wouldn't let the Israelites have a king again. And so what they did allow them to do is they allowed them still to kind of govern themselves, but not through a king, but through their religious laws. And so you get a group of scholars that understood the law and would interpret the law that now came up at this time. Now, hold on to that idea because that's going to continue on. But then later, the Greeks took over the Persians. And now the Greeks were ruling the entire known world. And what the Greeks wanted to do, where the other kingdoms didn't necessarily push as much, is the Greeks wanted to turn the entire world more Greek. And what this did was it put conflict in the eyes of God's people. Because they have God-given laws and God-given traditions, and God-given culture that is the identity that God has set for them to be God's people. And now the Greeks are wanting to wipe that away. And so there's a revolt that happens in about 167 BC to about 160 BC called the Maccabean Revolt. And after this revolt, God's people now kind of dominate 
the area again. And in this moment, these law scholars, these law interpreters come back strong. And what happens then is they split into two camps. So you have what I'll call the conservative, strict, separatist camp called the Pharisees. And they were really strict on the law, even so strict that their interpretation and their standards of living the law were sometimes higher than God's law themselves. And they wanted to preserve all of the Jewish culture and hold on to it. Now, the other half of the split we'll call the liberal camp. These law interpreters were called the Sadducees. And they didn't believe in the miraculous. There was a promised coming resurrection of the dead to the Jewish people in the end of the world. They didn't believe in that. And on top of that, they wanted to assimilate more into the Greek culture. They were willing to throw out traditions. They were willing to throw out things that the Pharisees were not willing to throw out. And these two groups came together and formed a ruling council that they called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin normally took up 20 to 70 people at a time. Well, if you fast forward a little bit to 27 BC, now Rome takes over Greece. And now Rome is dominating the entire world. But Rome kind of closes off, gives them a cap of what they could actually rule and do. And that later plays into how they got Christ crucified. Well, when Jesus shows up on the scene, the Sanhedrin was a Pharisee majority with a few Sadducees that were strong. But the biggest rub, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus because he would challenge their interpretations. And he challenged their rigidity, oftentimes for the sake of loving and caring for people. And he would challenge their interpretations and, and he would explain the true heart and purpose of the law. And when he would explain the purpose of the law, then sometimes it didn't quite agree with their interpretations and the ways they would live out God's law. And then you have the Sadducees. They didn't like Jesus because he was performing miracles and he was messing up their belief system by his teachings and his miracles. And so Jesus continued to challenge their ways. We see in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus says oftentimes, don't be like the religious leaders when he's talking about things like prayer and fasting. I think of Matthew 23, he talks about the religious leaders and there's this list of woe to yous. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, right? He says, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He, he, uh, he says, you slam the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Wow. I, I, and, and I think of Luke 14. Jesus is over at a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. There's a man with a swollen leg, and he heals them. He breaks the law. It was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath. He does it right in front of him. And then he takes the end of that chapter into the next chapter to talk about who God loves, and he challenges the Pharisees on who they consider are the in crowd with God. See, I want us to sit on this because I believe some of these tendencies are seen today in our Christian communities. Sometimes we have differences of interpretations. 
That's fine. Some Christians in the Christian community are quickly quick to want to assimilate into culture, and sometimes it can harm the countercultural, beautiful integrity of Christianity. And others are so strict that it feels like they hold the keys to what is the most holy way of living or the most holy way of viewing truth, and it comes with judgmentalism, exclusivity, and a culture of continued shame. These religious leaders, if they were here today, they would be the high-profile Christian leaders with books, TV shows, prominent churches, and even ties to high, powerful places. These religious leaders, if they were here today and they had social media, they're the types that would have massive Twitter accounts and big followings online. If they would share a thought, somebody would, they'd probably get thousands of likes and reshares. They're the ones that when there would be disagreements, and you see this on social media a lot, just because somebody disagrees with somebody, they'll start calling them names. You heretic, you know, that's one of the big ones. And then what they would do is they try to get a following behind them then to go on one of these witch hunts. See, we can follow the ways and rules and demands of a particular religious side here, thinking that in them we could find life. And nothing gives true life except for the transforming power of Jesus and the continual work of the Holy Spirit. This is the main rub of Jesus with the religious leaders. Let me ask you, how often have we sought out formulas, you know, the 10 easy steps to better your whatever? We think that in that it brings us life. How often have we then fallen into shame, not focused on the grace of Jesus, but we've beaten ourselves up to try harder and do better in our own might? We have thought that if we just tighten up the rules in our life, maybe we'll be more holy. But it doesn't work like that. But the times that I have functioned like that, I've fallen into one of two camps. One, maybe I'm consumed by shame and guilt because I just can't live up to the strict standards. Or maybe the other side, I'm doing so well that I feel that I did it in my own merit and I judge others. It's a nasty cycle, and it isn't actually holiness. It consumes us, though, sometimes with self-righteousness. Again, this is much of Jesus' rub with the religious leaders. I will repeat it. Following these ways and teachings do not actually bring us life. The good news of Jesus Christ and the continual work of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that brings true life. This is Jesus' point. Let me take you just a little bit deeper, okay? Why does Jesus liken the teaching of the religious leaders to yeast? Well, yeast is known as leaven. Leaven is a livening agent. So, Picture this metaphor, wheat is crushed, and it's crushed to the point that it has no ability to give life, has no ability to live in and of itself. And so dough is made out of this wheat that's crushed, and yeast, leaven, enters into the dough. It's mixed in, and what it does is it brings life. It's a livening agent. And in Exodus, if you look, there's a moment of Passover, 
God's people are in captivity in Egypt. Passover happens, and then they're freed from slavery. They're free from the bondage of slavery that they're in, and they start heading towards the promised land. And then after they're freed, while they're in the wilderness, God gives them the law. And the law gives them the ability to have identity as God's people, to know what God expects. And in the Jewish culture, every year in their church calendar, they remember Passover, and then they remember the moment where God gave them the law. And so at Passover, all of the yeast in the house is cleared out. It goes away, and it doesn't come back for 50 days until what's called the Festival of Weeks, where they remember the law is given. It's also known as Pentecost. And the Festival of Weeks is where they would bring yeast back into the home. I believe that metaphorically what Jesus is doing is when he is challenging religious leaders and the common ways of life based on their interpretations, I believe that he is clearing out rotten leaven. It doesn't bring life. It won't bring life. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus was put to death at Passover time on the calendar and he brings about freedom from sin that holds us bondage. And then later on in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. See, when we come to this moment at Pentecost, you can look at it, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes and then the gospel goes out where there's wind and fire. And there's, these are things that were seen in Exodus when the law was given. And they would have known this. They would have remembered this. God was doing it again. But instead of him sending the Ten Commandments, he sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the ancient church creeds, the Nicene Creed from 325 AD states this. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He is the new leaven. He is the livening agent. So we've gone deep into unpacking these ideas and we come to a moment where we ask, so what? Why does this matter? I believe it matters deeply and I believe Galatians 5 answers this. Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So what it's saying is it's saying if you're trying by your own might to follow rules of do's and don'ts, that your righteousness would come from that, your right standing with God would come from that, you have missed out and forgotten about grace. Verse 16, so I say, and this feels backwards compared to how I feel like I need to function. It says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling with desires of the flesh, sometimes I feel like I need to get all that figured out and then I could come to God. But what this is saying is come to God first. Seek God first. 
Then it lists out the desires of the flesh. And then it lists out the fruit of the Spirit, what it looks like for the Spirit to be evident in our lives. And then it ends with this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, the, the key is, is that it is so easy for us to come up with a formula or a list of do's and don'ts and try and follow those by our own might. And sometimes we just white-knuckle our way thinking that we're trying to be righteous. When in all reality, our first call is to surrender that control and to seek after God continue with this because Jesus says things about this again. He says in Matthew 6 verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. John 15, remain in me as I remain in you. He's talking to his disciples before he's about to be arrested. He says no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this week, I want to ask you, stand back, maybe ask the Holy Spirit to reveal some things to you, but ask yourself, what are some of the ideas and some of the patterns that might lead you to a place of slavery to guilt and shame. See, I, I think for all of us who have pursued after God, we've struggled with this. We fall short. Oh no, we messed up. And we fall into the cycle of shame and guilt. I believe that somebody needs to hear this this morning, that Romans 8 says, man, there is, for therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then be aware this week of the pressure that you might put on yourself to perform or maybe the pressure to perform to earn God's love or maybe to prove something to yourself or to prove something to somebody else, maybe to prove that you're worthy of something or God's love. And Jesus talks about this. That's that idea of not falling into the yoke of slavery, the teachings of slavery, what slavery brings you. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, which is referring to his way and his teachings, for I am gentle and humble at heart. And lastly, remember that you are loved. God's grace is amazing. And we are called to surrender and seek God. This is good news. See, we're not wandering around trying to figure out where true life and true transformation comes from. No, we are united with Christ and we are adopted into his family. That is good news. We are not alone in this. This is not for us to just try and figure out on our own. This is good news. So because of the work of Christ, we are offered new life. The Holy Spirit will lead us in the way of life, which is the way of what God is doing in and through us. And this is in step, and I'll say this, with the purposes of God's law. 
Trust the Lord and his work in you. Give it over to him. And this is the yeast and the livening agent that is worth pursuing. Let's pray. God, I pray that you reveal to us the good news of your grace. God, I pray that you reveal to us and we're able to surrender the moments that we try and take control God, we try to prove through performance our righteousness to ourselves or maybe we think we're proving it to God or to others. But let us rest in the fact that we are found righteous in Christ if we are in him and there is therefore no condemnation. So Lord, may we rest in that good news both. Maybe if we're wrestling with it here for the first time and and for the first time maybe somebody's going to surrender to you this morning or maybe we're coming back to it because we're realizing that God, that we need to continually pursue true life that comes from you. May you do work in our hearts this morning. May you continue it as we leave this place and we pray this in your name. Amen.